the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to the History Show on RTE Radio 1. On this week's programme... He put up resistance and we thought he was all right. He wasn't. He was jumped up and uh, tried to kill us. So in the struggle he was shot. Curious journey. We'll revisit the documentary in which nine veterans give an oral history of Ireland's revolution and explore how acts of violence echo through the ages. Also... It obviously was very ironic that the part of Ireland that was most opposed to home rule was the first part to get a home rule parliament, even though some said it was temporary. I don't think many people at the time really believed it was going to be temporary. Birth of the border. Cormac Moore joins us to talk about the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, the first step towards partition. We begin this evening, though, with Curious Journey. That's the name of a documentary produced in the 1970s featuring interviews with nine veterans of the Irish Revolutionary Period. Here are the faces of today's honoured patriots. It was written and presented by the late Kenneth Griffith, the Welsh actor and documentary filmmaker who had a passion for Irish history. You are now looking at some of the Irish people who personally persuaded the British imperial power after 750 years of occupation to leave that part of their small island, which is today's Republic of Ireland. He made several documentaries on Irish history throughout his life. Before Curious Journey, he made Hang Up Your Brightest Colours, an exploration of the life of Michael Collins. Michael Collins was very interested in the security game and therefore he knew that the English were coming for him and so they didn't uh, catch him. He was now as elusive as Houdini. Indeed, it was said that he knew every chimney pot in Dublin. Both of these documentaries were controversial. Griffith's films were unapologetically republican in their sympathies and critical of the British imperial project. Well, he came from a little village in Wales, Tenby. By the time I met him, he was a very established stage and film actor. He's, you know, 30 years older than me or something like that. And he had been making provocative documentaries about the British Empire. I was in my mid-20s. He was in his 50s. That's Timothy O'Grady. He worked as a researcher on the documentary Curious Journey and co-authored the 1982 book of the same name. He'd made uh, one about Michael Collins that was suppressed. When I met him, I was reading a lot about Ireland and so on in Irish history, and he asked me if I would assist him in uh, research for a book about Collins. And we went over to Dublin and Cork and met a number of people who knew Collins and were active in his period and interviewed them. And he kind of got distracted from the book about Collins and wanted to make a film of those people. And he did. Uh, There were nine of them, seven men, two women, fought on both sides of the Civil War, from all walks of life, really, active at different levels. He made this film for Welsh television, and it too was suppressed. So then I thought it would make a book. We had a lot of interview material and produced a book called by the same title as the film, which was Curious Journey, and it was, you know, an oral history of that period through those voices. What we heard at home from our parents' tradition, father and grandfather and friends and neighbours, that tradition came down every year 
every generation. That's the voice of John L. O'Sullivan, the late Fine Gael politician and one of the nine veterans in the documentary. And Irish history is a tragic history. And if you were an Irishman, just like if you were a native of any country, you love your own country. And people are prepared to make sacrifices for the right to live and to govern their own country. Timothy, in the 1982 Curious Journey book, you pause the War of Independence narrative and allow people like John L. O'Sullivan to speak about their experience of violence and the effect it had on them. Tell us a little bit about him and the story he told you when you met him in the 1970s, which didn't actually make it into the documentary, but makes it into the book. Well, we met him in Bandon in a room above a bar in a small hotel and off camera, he told a story about how he was involved in the capturing and the holding of a couple of deserters from the Essex Regiment who were seen wandering around Bandon and who were eventually executed. It was a story that John L. O'Sullivan insisted not be included in the film. But when it came to the book, I just thought it was an important story It obviously disturbed him, the episode, and I wanted it included because I thought it showed the human side of a volunteer at that time. And I I just asked him if he would agree that um, I could come down to Clonakilty where he lived and record him telling the story. And there was a lot of back and forth. And finally, he was persuaded. And I, I went down there. He was with his family three or four generations of people, big lunch, you know, roast chicken and various potatoes and trifle. And and then we were, he was going to tell me this story. And he insisted that all members of his family leave. But there was one grandchild who was three or four years old who was kind of playing around and wouldn't leave. And he, was try- he took a little windmill off a, a mantelpiece to try to coax her to take it out to her mother, and she wouldn't leave. And she was, you know, sort of throwing herself on the sofa. It took him about 20 minutes to get her to go. And finally she did, and he told the story. The story involved two British soldiers from the Essex Regiment who were seen wandering around the Bandon area and were subsequently captured by the IRA. They said they were deserters. And they said that they were deserters, they wanted to go back to England, they'd rather fight in a flying column than, you know, go back to the British Army, but what they most wanted was to go back to England. And um, they were taken to the column headquarters, they met Tom Barry, they told him this story. Barry was interested in preferably demolishing this barracks, but at least getting arms out of it. And one of them said he had a brother who was a sergeant in the regiment inside the barracks, and he felt the same as he did. And an arrangement could be made for them to meet, and they would make a plan. So three people were going to go meet this brother near the barracks in Bandon. And um, Barry, who was only 21 years old, had a heart attack and couldn't go. Another went in to substitute for him, and three altogether went. And when they went, they were surrounded, their bones were broken, and they were bayoneted to death. It looked like the whole thing 
had been set up. In the meantime, while this ambush was taking place, John L. O'Sullivan and his brother Patrick were delegated to guard the two supposed deserters. And uh, they became integrated really into the family life. They did some work on the farm, I believe. The mother just saw them as two men who were far away from home and she cooked for them and she was kind to them and they were moved from the house around to different locations. John L. and his brother also became friendly with them, played cards with them. But after this ambush, the order came down that these two men were to be executed. And the reason was that as far as Tom Berry was concerned, they had set this up and it was an old civil war tactic to uh, get deserters to go behind lines and provoke an action and expose people. And so in addition to which they had seen too much, they had met Barry, they had, you know, seen too many people and they were therefore dangerous and there was no prison to hold them. So they were to be executed. John L. and his brother were ordered to prepare a grave and bring the two soldiers to the place of execution. And when his brother went into the house to get a pick and shovel, the mother noticed this. She was watching for them, and the demeanor of his brother and the pick and the shovel seemed to indicate something dark was going to happen, and she said to him, don't do anything that you'll regret. So the two brothers took the two deserters up the road, who they told were going to be sent on a boat back to England, and they arrived at the place, and Moss Toomey was the officer in charge of the execution. They said to him, we're not going to let this execution go ahead, because they had decided to follow the lead of the mother, and they liked these men, and they were ambivalent about the whole process, and he said, well, we have to do it as orders, I know it's very tough, and they said, well, you have to shoot us first, and he ordered them eventually to turn around and go back and await further orders. And the orders were, they came down from Barry that the execution was to take place on the following night. And as punishment, the two brothers would be in the firing squad. So they followed the orders. A different officer was in charge. Uh, there was a scene then at the place of execution where the officer said to the two men, we're sorry, we're going to have to execute you. We're sorry, too, that we don't have a minister of your religion here present so that you could say a prayer before you died, but you can have a moment to yourself. And one of them said, why would we do that? And he said, well, for your soul. And the older one of the two lifted up his shoe and tapped the bottom, and he said, that's all the soul I had, which profoundly shocked John L. O'Sullivan, who was quite a young man at the time, and they were shot. And he says that he didn't take part in the execution. They argued that both brothers shouldn't have to do it, and he was the least experienced. His brother was older, so his brother was part of it, and he wasn't, he said. He also liked to persuade himself that they were spies, but clearly there was an ambivalence about this. And the story distressed him enough that, you know, he resisted telling it until quite late in his life. But then he somehow he was persuaded that it was a human story that was worth telling. And when he finished telling it, he seemed to be quite relieved, as if some burden had lifted from him, and he became kind of more affable and lighter. And 
John L. kind of evolved into the free state side, into a Fine Gael politician and also a blue shirt for a period of time. John L. O'Sullivan's story about the two doomed British soldiers, the two supposed deserters with whom John L. and his brother became friendly, is one that resonates across the generations. It's a story that has found its way into a number of literary and cinematic works. At some point, he was with a labour organiser, either in a prison or he'd arrested this person. I, I don't quite know the circumstances, but he told the story of this execution which took place near Clonakilty to this man. And it turned out that this man was a friend of Frank O'Connor's. And according to John L., that was the source of the story, the very famous, one of the most famous of all Irish short stories, Guests of the Nation, which in turn was transformed into, according to Frank O'Connor, Brendan Behan took it for the hostage and Neil Jordan used it as the basis for the first part of The Crying Game. So the story had many lives, and John L. carried it all his life. There are many examples throughout the Curious Journey film and book of how the trauma of these years affected the people involved. We're going to hear now the voice of Bridget Lyons Thornton. She was a Common Amon member who was in the Four Courts in 1916. During the War of Independence, she transported guns for the IRA, as she was one of the few people who had a car at the time. In this clip, she describes hearing the leaders of the Rising being shot while she was being held in Kilmainham Jail. But in the morning, I heard a terrible volley of shooting. And I asked the one who came into us, and to me, a Miss McInerney, I said, what was all the shooting this morning? She said, they were shooting some of the men. I didn't know who or what, and I didn't believe it. That day we were let out for about 10 minutes exercise, and we met a lot of other girls from other, who had been at other centres during the week. And I said to one of them, I heard they were shooting the men. She said, don't you worry, they're not going to shoot any of the men. They'd be too much afraid of America. Well, the next morning the shooting was on again and again and again. Every morning after that at about five o'clock, I could hear the man marching out once down by my cell door and a heavy march and out and then the volleys. That was very frightening, but I was consoled by what this girl told me. And I asked Miss McInerney again. She said, yes, there were more shot this morning. Well, for months afterwards, I always woke at that hour and I've never forgotten those volleys. Never. The voice there of Bridget Lyons Thornton. That's a very sobering clip there, and it speaks to how the events of the Irish Revolutionary period could haunt people for the rest of their lives. I'm joined now by historian Liz Gillis. And Liz, Thornton talked more about how the execution affected her in the Curious Journey book, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And and this is the part of our testimony that really jumps out because she goes into, she explains how lost they felt at that time um, and I'm just going to the quote here um, Miles what she actually says in the book she says um, it was as if the head of a family if both your parents were shot and all your family and you were orphaned there was no head or leadership or aunt left I never felt so desolate in my life as I did after that and that was the feeling of most people that everything was gone and lost but it helped to unite the people too their hostility to the executions brought them together again and I suppose what we sort of tend to forget especially when 
when you see the film, you know, they're elderly people at that time. But she was only 18 at that time when that actually happened. Like so many of them were so young. You know yourself, when you're that young, trying to deal with emotions. So something like that, the impact that it had on them, um, it's, it's unbelievable. One person who was involved in the Republican effort at a very young age was Martin Walton, another man who appeared in the documentary Curious Journey. When I arrived at Jacob's factory on the Tuesday morning, it was surrounded by a howling mob roaring at the volunteers inside to come out and get out to France and fight a lot of so-and-so slackers and all this sort of business. He was out in the Easter Rising, aged just 15, carrying dispatches between Jacob's Biscuit Factory and the GPO, and he also took part in the War of Independence. Walton then went on to become the founder of the famous Walton's Music Shop. Timothy O'Grady, you met him during the production of the documentary, and like John L. O'Sullivan, Martin Walton also told you a story during a break in filming. That's right. He told a story about something that happened in 1919 before Solo had beg, before any actions were actually sanctioned. Actually, I think it was 1918. And he had the flu and that terrible flu that happened in 1918. And he was finally let out for a walk. And when he went out for a walk, he met a couple of other volunteers who he knew a bit. And they said there were four, there were actually four of them and they were on a job and they asked him to go with them. It was a raid for arms. And he said raids were not sanctioned at that time, but if they worked, you got a pat on the back. And if they didn't, you were disowned. But he decided to go with them. They get, He said he didn't have a weapon. They said they had one for him. And the raid was on a house of a man named Pearson in Drumcondra, who was ex-British Army and He'd left his wife, and the wife's sister had given the IRA a tip-off that there were a lot of guns in the house, and they were going to get them. So they were told he'd come around 5 or 5.30 in the evening. They went, they waited outside, and he arrived drunk with two prostitutes and um, went into the house. So they deployed a couple of these men around the streets, and then Martin... Walton and a man called Liam knocked on the door. He came to the door. He was very gruff with them, but they pressed a revolver into his ribs and they said, we've come for your guns. Uh, You'll be given a receipt in the name of the Republic and you'll be paid when the Republic comes into being, but we have to get these. And they pushed him in. He'd said that there were no guns, but there was a rifle on a rack right inside the door. Liam took it brought it out to somebody else outside and came back in and the man attacked him and he got his arms around him and he was a huge man, like six foot four, very powerful, very wild and very enraged and he was squeezing the life out of Liam and he said, shoot now, shoot now, which he couldn't do because he'd have killed his comrade, Martin, that is. But he got around behind him and crashed this Webley revolver on the back of his head and the man collapsed. He then started looking for guns himself. He found a German Luger in a drawer. And when he was taking it out, this guy revived, got behind him and did the same thing to him. He grabbed him around the chest and was squeezing the life out of him. He thought he would kill them, kill him. And, uh, but he remembered that there was a little step very near and he sort of maneuvered over that way. The man fell on top of him. 
there was a scramble for the gun and others came in and they shot this guy. Three of them put their bullets into him and he just roared at them using an expletive and died. But when he told this story off camera, the camera crew was there, Kenneth was there, I was there, a couple of others were there. He entered this story in a way that I've, I've never seen anything. It was like he was transported in time. He acted out the entire thing progressively, getting more and more into it and more and more distressed. And his breathing became short. His eyes grew very wild. He, he acted out the entire scene with the man swinging his comrade around and swinging him around. And when he came to the moment that the shooting happened, his arm went out as if he had a gun at the end. And it was as if he could see this man. His hand began to shake and his arm began to shake and his body began to quake. It was like he was having some kind of convulsion. It was very disturbing to watch. And when he finished, he kind of collapsed into a chair. You know, you sort of wonder, was he going to make it? I mean, it was so distressing to him to tell this story. Eventually, he calmed down, had a drink of something, and Kenneth asked him if he would repeat the story for the camera, which seemed unlikely, but he agreed, and he, he told the story with the camera on him, and, you know, he sort of straightened his tie, straightened his hair, was sitting, looking very serious and concentrated. In the paper recently, there was uh, four articles written about a certain and an episode is called an unsolved murder. And it was simply and solely a raid for arms. And the man that was raided for arms happened to be, we didn't know, a British spy. And I never saw a bigger man in my life. He was about six foot three or four, built in proportion. And I think I was about 18 at the time. And uh, there was a terrible trouble and he nearly killed two of us, including myself. And we had to shoot him. And he said, well, it was, it was a story in the paper about an unsolved murder. It wasn't a murder at all. It was a raid for arms. And we found out later the man was a British spy. I don't know how he knew that. That may have been similar to John L. O'Sullivan thinking that these men were spies. It might have made it easier for him to assimilate what had happened. But he said, you know, we offered to pay for the guns and everything would be done correctly. And we were very polite, but he attacked us and... Uh, we had to deal with him, and he was shot. The tip-off was given that he had a lot of arms in the house. He was called upon to deliver the arms and at the point of the gun. And he put up resistance, and when he was dealt with, and we thought he was all right, he wasn't. He was jumped up and uh, tried to kill us. So in the struggle, he was shot. But it wasn't a question of murder at all, which was the last thing we intended doing. He was offered a receipt for the guns he was being taken from, that he would be paid for them, and that it was a recognised, what what we call the recognised government at the time that was gave us the power to do this. No use. And then Kenneth, with all the drama that he could muster in his voice, said, did that event haunt you, sir? He looked straight at him and he said, not at all. Does that event haunt you? Not at all. There was no intention there. It was pure self-defence. It was quite stunning that there was one self which had lived the experience 
and another self that was telling it to the public. I think this possibly is can be common to people in war, but anyway, that was that was the drama that we saw that day. Now, Martin Walton is obviously somebody who is very well known in Ireland, not just because of the the fact that he became involved in the music business as a music publisher, as a, a shop owner, but also uh, from a, a radio point of view, a very long-running sponsored program on, on RTE. But uh, he, was, he was a violinist himself. And the story of how he got his start in the musical instrument business in itself is quite fascinating. And it's, it relates uh, to the War of Independence because he was sent to Ballykinler internment camp in County Down. That's right. And when he was there, he'd also been uh, a secretary to the editor of the Freeman's Journal. And when he got to Ballykindler, everybody who knew anything was giving classes to fellow internees and prisoners. And he gave classes in shorthand and the violin. He'd been playing violin in the first cinemas in Ireland. And um, he'd also given music lessons. And so he he started giving shorthand and violin lessons. The violin lessons were massively more popular than the shorthand. There was a, a need for more violins, and they, the camp commandant, I mean, the British camp commandant, allowed that to happen, and the American White Cross procured a shipment of violins from Bosey and Hawks in London, and they arrived. But before the new lessons could get started up, the uh, truce happened, and the prisoners were all released, and they were left with these unused violins. And uh, the IRA camp commandant asked him if he would, so they could balance the books, if they could sell the violins. And he was going back to work, and he was also thinking of starting a music college in Dublin. That was an idea that Collins had, and Petter Carney, who wrote the soldier song, had. And he was in the camp with him, and he was busy doing this thing. And he put his father in charge of selling the violins, and an ad went in the paper, and they went almost overnight he had no money at all, and he saw this as a business opportunity. His father somewhat disapproved because his father thought, you know, all business was capitalist crime, but Martin thought he could make a living out of this. He traced the violins to the supplier of Bosey and Hawks to Bavaria, to a manufacturer in Bavaria, and so this, you know, 20 two-year-old ex-prisoner with no credit rating places an order for a lot of violins. And it turned out that the the man who owned the musical instrument factory was a spiritualist. And uh, he held a seance to decide whether he should send these violins to Martin. And the word came back that he could do that safely. And that's how he started in his business, which, you know, made him quite a wealthy man and we went when we went to interview him it was in a house called Ashdown Lodge at the near the north gate one of the north gates of Phoenix Park and it was a house that was one time owned by a Colonel Dugdale who was the grandfather of Rose Dugdale and later occupied by a General Sandbach and the executions in 1916 were discussed in that house Maxwell came to that house but it wound up in rebel hands, in a sense, and it was an extraordinary house. It was an, full of archives of newspapers, theaters, old rifles, empty whiskey bottles, 
There was a ballroom knee deep in violins and lacquered tortoise shells. There was um, his daughter raised Kerry Blues and Wolfhounds. There were wolfhounds kind of drifting like giraffes through the house, in and out of the windows, through the rooms. There was a death mask of Peter Carney and Finton Lawler. And, you know, ex there was an experimental vineyard. He was a very extraordinary, forceful, interesting man. And, well, that's where he told the story that so distressed him. Timothy, you've described for us this evening two encounters with two elderly IRA veterans. Both of them told stories that demonstrate how acts of violence lived on in their psyches for the rest of their lives. If you had to sum it up, what did you learn from these encounters? Well, you know, these people, they were very, very impressive, articulate, principled, sensitive people who had prodigious memories and you know, obviously had risked their lives at that time. But I could also see that because perhaps of those qualities, that, you know, the taking of another life is, is a very grave thing. And uh, there, there was a historian, Nicholas Mansurg, who wrote about this period, and he talked about how historians reduce things to cause and consequence what the actual participants live as terrible and chaotic and, and very distressing circumstances. And the historians tend to, you know, reduce in their telling those consequences what the people feel as, as events that are very difficult for them to assimilate. And I think that was evident in that. And I think this is often the case with war. I recently read a, a very great book by... Svetlana Alexievich, uh, the Nobel Prize winner from Belarus, who, uh, who wrote about, uh, in The Unwomanly Face of War, Soviet women who were involved in the Second World War who felt absolutely justified by what they had done. But as old women, they were still carrying the deep, deep distress of being close to violence and particularly the taking of life. And I think, you know, when people think of soldiers in war, they particularly volunteers in a, in, a, in a liberation struggle, they can think them heroes because they, they risk imprisonment or death and they, you know, they take those risks. But it seemed to me what is even a larger part of the sacrifice is having to live with having taken life. And even if you think it is justified, it doesn't reduce the weight of that burden. Well, thank you very much indeed, Timothy, for sharing those stories with us tonight. My guest was the writer Timothy O'Grady. The documentary Curious Journey is on YouTube. We'll put a link on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. I'm joined finally once again by historian Liz Gillis. Liz, how important were works like Curious Journey when they were produced? Because you're talking about the 1970s and uh, early 80s, that sort of period. Uh, they're vital miles and thankfully Kenneth Griffith was driven to do this. He saw how important it was to get these stories down and what is really important about documentaries or books like Curious Journey is the way they were made. Like interviews had been undertaken with veterans in the 1960s. We've seen them 
with, you know, people who took part in 1916, but they're very formal. They're in a studio setting. They're, it's like a safe environment, but you can see with Curious Journey, the settings that the, the, the people are in, they're relaxed. Griffith obviously built up a lot of trust with them and it's a conversation that they're having. And when you find in, when you're having the conversation, other stories come up that you may not expect when you ask that question. And again, remembering the time that they were made, this is long before anyone really knew that the BMH witness statements um, were in existence. Some people had access to them. You know, the pension files were never going to be released. So to get those testimonies down while these people were in their twilight years, you know, he realised the importance of them. And it was just such an amazing feat to, to get those stories because looking at the witness statements, looking at the pension files, they verify what these veterans have said. And the really important thing is, Miles, they show them as people. These are people at the end of the day. It's not a, a one-dimensional character behind the name. These are men, women who took part in momentous events, didn't know what was going to happen and certainly didn't bank on the cost to them uh, psychologically, personally. And you see that on screen and you read that in the book. And when you see the film, you hear their voices. You know when you're reading the book, you can hear the voice of Breedlines Torrent. You can hear and see and imagine the passion of Kenneth Griffiths, you know. Um, it's, it's just amazing and really fair place to two of them, both him and Timothy O'Grady, for doing it. We'll have to leave it there, Liz. The, the book and film Curious Journey are certainly fascinating and important historical documents when it comes to remembering and understanding this period of violent upheaval in our history. After the break, Cormac Moore joins us to talk about the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 and the first steps towards partition. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. On the 23rd of December 1920, the British Parliament's Government of Ireland Act was formally approved by King George V. Also known as the Fourth Home Rule Bill, the Act was the first step towards partition and the ultimate exclusion of the six counties in the north from an independent Irish state. It was believed to be a temporary measure, but 100 years on, Ireland remains partitioned. To talk about the Act and its legacy, I'm joined now by Cormac Moore, a Dublin City Council historian-in-residence and the author of the book Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition in Ireland. Cormac, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Now, the 1914 Home Rule Act, which was delayed by the First World War, was actually still on the statute books and was due to become law. What followed was obviously a very eventful six years, but how did the 1920 Act differ from what was proposed in 1914. Yeah, well, well, as you said, the 1914 Act was on the statute books and once the final peace treaties were signed, it would have become law by default. Um, So Lloyd George set up a committee chaired by uh, British Cabinet member Walter Long and Walter Long's committee devised the Government of Ireland Bill. There's two big differences were um, the first and most important one was that there would be a parliament for Ulster. There would be actually two parliaments instead of one. One for Ulster and one for the other provinces. And then binding the two, there would be a Council of Ireland, which would comprise of 20 members from both parliaments. Now, the British government, you know, publicly claimed they hoped that this Council of Ireland would lead to eventual unity. But in reality, they knew that wasn't a likely prospect. And even though some said it was temporary, 
I, I don't think many people at the time really believed it was going to be temporary, considering the significant and extremely hostile opposition of Ulster Unionists to being part of a Dublin Parliament. And did the British government actually think that Sinn Féin would agree to this legislation or did they even care? No, they didn't care. Walter Long um, was you know, a staunch unionist. He, he was formerly Chief Secretary of Ireland and leader of the Irish Unionist Alliance before Edward Carson. He was rapidly anti-Sinn Féin. He, he, it was actually him who suggested um, using ex-soldiers to bolster the RIC which came in the guise of the Blackened Hands and the Auxiliaries in 1920. Um, he didn't care. He even said it himself, I don't care what Sinn Féin think of this. This is nothing about Sinn Féin. The Government of Ireland Act was an attempt to solve the Ulster question and not the overall Irish question. And even, even in 1920, you had huge changes in the British administration in Dublin Castle. Most of the newcomers, like John Anderson um, and even Neville McCready, the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in Ireland, they believed there should have been an All-Ireland solution, a, you know, a Dublin Parliament devolved government. But the, the British government were insistent on just solving the Ulster issue and then coming back to the overall Irish uh, uh, problem once that was uh, solved in their minds. Did Ulster Unionists, though, at the time actually want a separate parliament? No, um, they were very reluctant supporters of the bill. Obviously, they they were wanted to stay fully within Westminster, and it obviously was very ironic that the part of Ireland that was most opposed to Home Rule was the first part to get a Home Rule Parliament. But soon afterwards, they start to realise this is actually going to benefit us. Charles Craig, James Craig's brother, he said, actually, this is everything we fought for, everything we armed ourselves for, and he was looking to the future, even the near future where perhaps the British Labour Party would be in power or Herbert Asquith's Liberal Party would come back into power and they wouldn't be as supportive of uh, divided Ireland as Conservatives and uh, Lloyd George's coalition Liberals. Um, so he actually realised that this is actually going to give us more security, more stability by having our own parliament. And soon many other unionists, Ulster unionists, came around to that thinking. Was it the case, Cormac, that the original Northern Ireland unit that was envisaged would actually have been nine counties. Yes, originally Waterlong's committee suggested that the Ulster Parliament should be the full nine counties of, of the province. However, James Craig was always talking to the committee. Walter Long was first Lord of the Admiralty, but uh, James Craig was actually his first secretary. So he, he was um, always in communication with the British government being a part of it. And he was insistent. He, he actually even suggested in late 1919 that there should be a boundary commission, even though he was vehemently opposed to this odious boundary commission that was set up uh, with the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 1921. But in 1919, he thought a boundary commission would have limited the amount of territory that you know would have had a nationalist majorities. Most Ulster Unionists believed that the best solution for him would have been a six-county, you know, it would have been sizable enough, but it would have been a two-thirds uh, a Protestant Catholic majority. And they, they, they feared it with a nine-county uh Parliament, they eventually could be outbred by Catholics. Um, so it was actually the only decided by the British government to go along with the Ulster Unionist uh, request in February 1920, just as the bill was, was going through the House of Commons. And of course, this was bitterly opposed by Unionists from Donegal, Cavan and Monaghan, who uh, felt they were being left hung to dry. And Thomas Moles, the Belfast MP, admitted as, as much. He said, if, if a ship is sinking, and you've only got lifeboats for two-thirds of the ship's company, are all to condemn themselves to death because all could not be saved. How united were Irish unionists when it came to this legislation? 
the divisions within unionism had been growing for years and it was probably most uh, seen most clearly with the Irish Convention of 1917-1918. With the Government of Ireland bill, Southern Unionists were totally opposed to it. They were totally opposed to the partition of Ireland. Many left the, the Irish Unionist Alliance and actually set up a, an anti-partition league you know, led by Lord Middleton. Um, but, but a lot of kind of famous uh, business holders from Dublin, people like Lord Ivy and Good Bodies and Jemisons and so on. The most vociferous opponents of partition, obviously, Comic would have been Northern Nationalists. Was there, was there anybody really fighting their corner? Well, obviously, after the 1918 general election, Sinn Féin were the dominant Nationalist Party of Ireland. They abstained from Westminster, so they didn't... Uh, they didn't get involved in any stages of the bill or in any aspects of the bill. They, they practically ignored it. Now, a lot of people said if there was you know, a, a strong kind of 80-seat uh, nationalist presence in the Westminster, that could have made a difference. I'm not so sure because of the arithmetic in Westminster, you had Conservatives who won 339 seats, Lloyd George's uh, Coalition Liberals won 136 seats. Then you had Irish Unionists making up 26 seats. That's over 500 seats. So no matter who was there, whether it was 80 or 7 as it transpired, I don't think it would have made much difference. Um, there was just 7 Irish Nationalist MPs left, 6 from Ireland and T.P. O'Connor from Liverpool. They didn't get involved either really because the Catholic Church were advising them not to get involved in the committee stages or making amendments to the bill because it would be seen as tacit approval of the partition bill. Um, Bishop uh, of Derry, Charles McHugh, said, we, the Catholic Ulster, are not going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for Sir Edward Carson. So Joe Devlin, the leading Irish Nationalist MP, left in Westminster. He was in a quandary um, and he, did, he didn't, you know, he, he said the bill was conceived in Bedlam, but he didn't get involved in, in any you know, aspects of shaping the bill other than voting against it. Would it be fair to say that the Tory leader, Andrew Bonner Law, was the most vociferous champion of a separate Northern Parliament? And that the Prime Minister, Lloyd George, who was the head of a minority partner in a government coalition, just kind of wanted it to go away. He wanted the solution and he wanted to get shot of the whole issue. Yeah, you know, that would be correct. Uh, Lloyd George was a prisoner of his own government. And, and as I stated, with the, the makeup of the, the huge Conservative numbers, um, really affected his uh, decision-making ability. Now, Bonner Law was, was suffering from ill health as well, so he was kind of coming in and out of the government at the time. Walter Long was the, the architect of the bill. Um, but you also had Arthur Balfour. Um, when, when someone suggested what had been suggested pre-1914, you know, could we have plebiscites, county-by-county county plebiscites? Arthur Balfour you know, flippantly said, you know, plebiscites are only for vanquished enemies. Um, so they, they decided against plebiscites, the Conservative Party, Conservative leadership early on and you know, ramroded through with, with the uh, helping Ulster Unionists and, and not even listening or talking to, to nationalists. But yeah, and Lloyd George, as is well documented, was a very trickery, you know, slippery character. He wanted to be the person to solve the Irish question, how it was solved. You know, he, he wasn't uh, that, that bothered ideologically. Um, but people like Boner Law were, like Boner Law was known as an orange fanatic. His father was uh, originally from Coleraine. Um, so he was as hardline a uh, uh, unionist as you would get in, in the North East. Were there provisions in the legislation designed to avoid any form of religious discrimination? Well, the the Act specifically says there cannot be discrimination based on religion, but that literally went by the wayside before the, before Northern Ireland came into being um, based on the civil service. There's one example of a very senior uh, civil servant, uh, the British Treasury um, 
suggested H.P. Boland to be in, in uh, the Northern Ireland Civil Service. And they got a very simple reply from the Northern Ireland uh, government. No, thanks. I think you know why. It was because he was Catholic. And you had like Richard Dawson Bates, who was the Home Affairs Minister. He found out there was a Catholic telephonist in his office. So he wouldn't even answer the phone because he was afraid that all Catholics were secessionists and disloyal. And she had to be removed from the office. So there was a huge uh, discrimination based on religion from the very get-go. And the British government didn't follow up with the Northern government for breaking the, the Government of Ireland Act in terms of discrimination against Catholics. Written into the legislation was provision for a number of All-Ireland institutions, bodies and indeed services. What happened there? Well, well a lot of the um, uh, reserved services like postal services, railways and so on, they were meant to be part of the Council of Ireland. But the Council of Ireland never convened because only one part of the Government of Ireland Act or one Parliament of the Government of Ireland Act sat and met. And then they had the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which superseded the Government of Ireland Act for the 26 counties. And those services were reserved in Westminster. So Northern Ireland didn't have control over its postal services, over railways, over customs, until you know a solution was reached of abandoning the Council of Ireland in late 1925. Introducing legislation that established two separate parliaments was one thing, but was it not the case that a number of cultural and sporting organisations, for example, and not all inherently nationalist either, simply ignored partition? Yeah, no, I've written extensively about this in my book that the partition of Ireland was a political and legal partition, but not a social and cultural one. Like all major religions, except for Judaism, did not structurally change because of partition. They still are all Ireland bodies, including the the three main Protestant religions. The Catholic Church obviously remains an all Ireland body, as did most sports. Many trade unions are all Ireland bodies and a lot of other trade organisations um, um, remain so as well. There, there was no obligation or compunction for them to divide when the country politically divided. In fact, you had a, the bizarre scenario of Ulster Unionist politicians like John Andrews and Thomas Moles who strived for a partitioned Ireland politically but wanted a united Ireland in sports. Um, and that was quite common uh, in the early decades of partition. Now, there's a perception that Edward Carson... Uh, took a back seat in all of this because he was a Southern Unionist with no stomach for partition and that most of the running was left then to James Craig. Though, is that actually what happened? Well, well, Craig was involved in the committee in devising the bill because he was part of the British government, but publicly he, he wasn't that involved in selling the bill because he still was with the British government. Carson, to me, Carson's uh, support of our opposition to partition has been... Uh, somewhat misconstrued. He he reluctantly supported the bill. He said it depresses him and you know he felt that he was abandoning unionists from the, the three Ulster counties that weren't going to be in the uh, Northern Ireland Parliament and the, the Southern Unionists. But he did support it and he only left the stage when a Northern Ireland Parliament was secured. And actually on his uh, resigning speech in February 1921, he says... I'm happy you've got your parliament. Now you have your parliament. You must make sure you keep it. Even that very famous speech he made in the House of Lords after the signing of the treaty in December 1921, the part where he says, you know, we were fools, we were only puppets of the Conservative Party. That wasn't in opposition to partition. That was in opposition to Sinn Féin getting too much powers and actually conceding too much to Sinn Féin. And also he was condemning the British government for trying to get the Northern Parliament into a Dublin uh, parliament. I don't think by his actions you can say he was against partition. 
Um, he would have ideally have liked for all of Ireland to remain within the Union. But he was the main driver to make sure that six counties would have been excluded and ultimately to have their own parliament in, in 1921. Would it be fair to say that fractious and long-standing, though the legacy of partition has obviously been, at least the, the British handled it better than they did the partition of India and Palestine later, which led to hundreds of thousands of deaths? Well, that that was uh, like it, it actually became the template in many respects for the partitions of Palestine and India. And, and one thing they learned from the Irish partition was it was too drawn out. There was too much uncertainty. So you had very short, snappy partitions in Palestine and India. And obviously, with that came the the horrific violence in, in both those uh, um, um, territories. Um, but but the, you know the legacy is still ongoing with the partition of Ireland, and and, and one of those legacies was the Troubles. It did not solve the Irish problem. And I think we have to look at the the overall scheme of the British Empire and including the French Empire at the time. The idea of partitions for the British was not to solve ethno community problems. It was to increase their lifespan, you know, to, to offer some form of devolved government, but as long as the British Empire remained intact. And they weren't good solutions. They didn't solve the actual the problems that they were trying to solve. Um, so, yes, the, the violence that accompanied India and Palestine were worse at the time than the Irish partition. But then we had the Troubles as well, which, which was also an awful period of, of uh, violence. And that was directly because of the partition solution. If you'd like to read more about the Government of Ireland Act and its legacy, Cormac's book, Birth of the Border, The Impact of Partition, is published by Irish Academic Press. Cormac Moore, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks, Miles. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye. Thanks for listening, and have a good new year. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. <laughs>